Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I am nothing more than a reminder to you that you cannot destroy truth. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, two hands clap and there's a sound. But what is the sound of one hand clapping? I refer to the Simpsons episode, which famously had Lisa asking Bart the same question. And all he did was make his hand go like this. (laughs) It's like the... so, So what I'm doing is I'm just bringing my fingers down to my palm. But like no no you didn't you don't need to explain you can just say for the listener he made his hands go like this that is a um, in some ways how I feel you're like it's very reflective of your attitude towards some of the more obscure philosophical puzzles where you're just like oh fuck this <laughs> of course so there's a couple of possible ways to answer it one is it doesn't make a sound right like what are you talking <laughs> about um, two is it's not clapping if it's just one hand so there's a contradiction (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's also in my mind a slim possibility like it's a famous zen cone right like is that how you pronounce it cone i think so it's like like the jewish last name like cohen do you think it could possibly be a metaphor for jerking off (laughs) (laughs) like you know it's like a kind of a monk uh, instructing a student and he's kind of explaining to him like either how to do it or telling him not to do it uh, do buddhist do buddhist monks uh they, they're celibate right i don't know well there's so many different kinds of buddhism which i guess good segue we have this is like a bucket list guest um we've had a couple of these are you vaping yeah what i'll, t- I'll explain to you i'll explain to you why in a second i'm not gonna explain it on air it's just an e-cigarette. If you thought that Dave was hipster before, this is... <laughs> I don't even know how to process this. It's better than doing cocaine. No, I have a friend it's, it's, who... It's absolutely who, friend, not. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like valenced the, the other way. <laughs> okay, in one, in one <laughs> sense. I have a friend who quit smoking through e-cigarettes, and she left some at my house. And I find that it's actually really fun. I mostly just like seeing smoke coming out of my mouth, like doing smoke rings. It's entertaining. Me. Well, just so don't get distracted. Get stoned. I, this mm-hmm. is. I'm so glad. I don't do drugs. I, I don't do drugs. I'm so glad we already did the interview. Like I wouldn't have been able to concentrate. <laughs> so this is a bucket list guest, Robert Wright. I'll explain why in the interview, which we've already done, we've already recorded, and 
can you not do well i guess you can't like I do, <laughs> just I've done, calm down <laughs> it's fucking with me that you're even put, doing it put your like audio window on top of me right so that's that you what i see me do. yeah just not okay like, i'll, I'll, stop. I'll just sit my espresso i'm feeling like a french existentialist <laughs> a modern one sipping espresso vaping smoke all around me talking about the meaninglessness of life you know, this maybe we should have done our earlier opening segment idea who we would like divorce each other to do a, a separate podcast with. Um, <laughs> you would have all of a sudden the names are flooding, are now flooding that into your mind. <laughs> it becomes a salient question. Yeah. <laughs> we have Robert Wright, who is a meaningful figure. Not that he knew this and not that I have ever met him, but he was a meaningful figure in my life, as I explain. And he has a book coming out called Why Buddhism is True. And so that's what we will talk about in. In the second segment. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, because we didn't give our opinion or stand on Buddhist philosophy um, when we were talking to him. We just sort of tried to clarify um, some of the things that he talks about in his book. Um, but where do you stand on Buddhism as a philosophy, as a metaphysics, and maybe as a morality? I've always struggled with this. And, and one of the things that we didn't talk about too much in the interview, but that comes up again and again in, in the book itself, is the, the, the sort of relationship Buddhism has to paradox, where there's sort of truth through paradox. And I've always really struggled with some of the claims like that there is no self, and that the and that reality as we perceive it is an illusion, um, which is at the heart of of uh, the book. And and I always, I, I I have struggled with it. I here's what I do like. I, I should say like this is what I do like. There there is some deep realization in Buddhist, in Buddhist thinking. I think ac across many strands of Buddhism that sort of accepts that the human condition is suffering and the way in which you can get the only good way to get rid of human suffering is to um, accept to sort of withdraw your your desires like with withdraw yourself from this existence and I've always thought that that's there's something deeply true about that but and you might hear it in the interview maybe you and, and me both I struggle with the fact that this existence is all we have and I kind of like pleasure and commitments to other people and um, caring about and so, attachments with other attachments. People. So like I am deeply attached. I'm not attached to stuff. So I'm like a like a I'm like a Walmart self-help section Buddhist in that like I'm I don't like accumulating lots of stuff. But when it gets down to the real shit, like the real nitty gritty of of not being attached to people. Um, or or even like pets or caring deeply about I, I don't know it's it's something that that bothers me yeah I mean so you said that was the thing that you liked about it I'd say that's one of the things that I actually don't find to be particularly appealing about Buddhism that I buy that it's true I buy that that's one that's the best way to probably relieve suffering I, I guess I'm of the camp that like I'll I'll take the suffering I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, you know, we were talking about what you mean by desire, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also like what you mean by suffering. Like I, I think it causes short-term suffering, but something isn't suffering if it's also the thing that makes life worth living. Right. Um, in my conceptual analysis of suffering. <laughs> right. I mean, you have to, you know, we way back when, when we we're talking about, I think antinatalism and we were talking about having a dog, yeah, we were using and one of the things I said is that one of the one of the reasons I sort of don't have a dog right now is because I know that it's signing signing yourself up for like misery in 10 years. Yeah, like if you're lucky um, and I just had I was just reminded of that conversation when um, I was moving out of my apartment uh, last week and my landlord was there renovating other apartments and her she had this beautiful dog with her and so i was talking to her about the dog and she says yeah you know she probably has only a couple of days left to live and i was like heartbroken <laughs> i was just like it turned out that that she's just like cancer is riddled through her body and it you know at best she has a week and i i knew this dog for all of 10 minutes before i found out this information and i was like so fucking sad about it i i we we couldn't disagree more about that i mean like to me it's the the day-to-day i mean but it's sort of like well we agree about even what you were saying the day-to-day pleasure of it yeah it's 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 the most wrenching i i drove my dying dog across country um and when i got there had to put her to sleep it was like the worst like one of the worst experiences of my life and i've lost both my parents but i i just don't see how you like i don't see how one doesn't have a dog um just right. for well, the, 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 the daily <laughs> joy well what i'm expressing now is though is conflict so it's yeah, it's, it's a conflict. sort of yeah. it's i have pragmatic reasons for not having a dog as i travel too much right. and i don't want the dog itself to suffer from me leaving but um but yeah, so I, I have this sense that that would be like when I said that I don't want that I don't want a dog because of the suffering that it would bring. It was sort of like a Buddhist step for me. Yes, but I realized that I can't. I, I'm not good at living my life that way, and I don't even know if I want to live my life that way. In in some sense, it's really the opposite of what some, um, like there are some cultures that that do a better job of embracing negative emotion. And so they say, you know, look, life is full of joys and sorrows and embrace them all because that is the stuff life is made of. I I find that Buddhism and I'm ignorant about, you know, there are plenty of Buddhists who probably know more than I do and may may be willing to correct me. (laughs) But, you know, there might be some interpretations that are actually not along the lines of what I'm saying. But my sense is that that's that's the solution to suffering. It is detachment. There's a strain of Buddhism and Wright talks about this in his book, as I understand it. Um, but it, there is also just the acceptance of attachments and their temporary nature, their, their impermanence. So you, if you accept the attachments and then accept their impermanence, so it's not like the Stoics who, the, the Stoics specifically say, don't get attached to your kids. Treat your kid dying as just like, you know, some vase you don't care about get breaking or something like that you know and which to me just seems like that that holds no appeal to me and i think you could there is a way in which buddhism can be can seem like that and i think there are probably some monks who have 
you know, interpreted it that way. But I don't see that you you have to interpret it that way because if you did, then I then that then I'm you know I, I don't even have as much sympathy with that idea maybe as as you do. Like so, here's a couple of things that I find really plausible. Number one, you know, they they really do have a focus on practice. And this is something, as somebody who has meditated for, you know, now a year and a half, that it's really not about the beliefs or what you think. It's just about doing it every day. And and, And I think they have this idea, which seems to me to be right, and in line with some strains of Western philosophy, that your beliefs... And what you sort of rationally, the conclusions you rationally arrive at will only take you so far. And it's really not very far. And the thing that will get you where you want to go, whether it's to be more relaxed, more compassionate, more or to understand uh, yourself, the thing that will get you there is just practice. It is the repetitive habit of engaging with the world in a certain way. Because you can believe all the things that Buddhists ask you to believe, but that won't actually have a big effect on your life. And whereas, if you just practice and do what they tell you to do, it really it's it really doesn't matter as much what you believe. But what are you practicing? I mean, aren't you practicing a certain attitude toward the world? You're. I I don't think so. I mean, like uh, you are practicing just observing. You're just, you know, when you're meditating, at least this mindfulness meditation, you're just trying to figure out what's going on in your body, the sensations in your body, your thoughts, um, and and that's it. Like, you're not trying to come to some sort of insight about the universe. You're not trying to come to, you're not trying to, you're just observing what's going on. Uh, your sensations, your thoughts, your emotions, how these thoughts and emotions are connected. And, and you know, this is the second thing that I think is really plausible about Buddhism is this idea, and, and Robert Wright said it in the interview, that thoughts think themselves. And there really is a sense, and you can get this in David Hume, you don't need to go to Buddhism for this, where thoughts just kind of are appear in your... And, and, and we view them we don't think them there's a, there's a sense in which saying i think this is not true it's like the thought is there and i acknowledge the thought and that's just everyday experience and you know when you meditate that becomes not only more salient but also really annoying because sometimes your thoughts are like it feels like they're attacking you and all you want to do is sort of observe the tingling in your hands or follow your breath or whatever and these thoughts keep intruding on that like like some sort of nosy next door neighbor or something so i mean will you know william james when he describes the will and his principles of psychology has a very similar view of of conscious experience he he sort of just views um through very automatic processes a bunch of thoughts are going through your mind he did believe in free will of a sort of agentic sort where he said but but what he said was the only thing the will does is every once in a while it can make a thought last longer like it can keep a thought in in there and when you do that then you're acting volitionally and that does feel right you know like you can sort of decide am i going to get on that train of thought 
or am I not, you know? Right. And and that's the paradox to get, to bring back to the first thing that I was saying is yeah. these are the kinds of paradoxes that, that I struggle with. Um, uh, there is something about mindfulness meditation, which seems so agentic, like so volitional that the whole point is to sharpen your ability to not be controlled by your thoughts. And if that's not self and agency, it's hard to know what is. Right. Even if you get there by denying the self, it seems really, really power, a really powerful tool for whatever it is that is you to focus, you know. And there's that thing of what's, we tried to get at this a little bit, but what is the thing that's observing all, all the thoughts? And what's the thing that's observing the, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be an agentic self but it has to be a it seems like it has to be a self or at least i don't understand what it is then because at no point do i not feel like oh it's me that's feeling vibrations in my feet or the sa- or hearing the sounds or whatever it is that i'm supposed to be doing there's still a me that's yeah so i don't get that and i think you're right <laughs> we said that after there's a comfort with paradox that buddhists have and you sort of have to take their word for it it's like you'll understand i've, I've listened to a lot of interviews because i listened to this podcast on buddhism called 10 percent happier with dan harris which robert wright is going on in a couple weeks and the, 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 the people who are more enlightened come on and they're like, yeah, I can't really describe it, but you, f- you know, the best is it, it just becomes more part of your experience that there's less of a division between you and the rest of the world. You just got to do it, though. Yeah. And, and in some ways, like the, the, the way in which we're trained to think, like just by dint of the, the, the disciplines that we're in are the opposite very resistant to yeah. paradox it's like and, and so i i have to throw up my hands and say okay well if they say that it's something that you just experience then and you can't describe it then cool like then then i guess i'll wait to experience it but but yeah it's like the the rigidity of analytical thinking yeah. is is um something that you kind of have to let go of and and i think to myself well if everybody did that we probably wouldn't have you know calculus uh, like i don't know <laughs> no uh, certainly right or airplanes maybe <laughs> right. or whatever but um you know given that i haven't invented any of those things anyway <laughs> yeah you know the world's not depending on my my resistance to yeah yeah i don't want elon musk to get too buddhist right like because like he might invent some cool shit for me since we are still attached to worldly things maybe we should uh do support you're you're getting really good at this segue thing like a radio you're like a radio personality i'm trying yeah like i've put the whole e-cigarette thing behind me (laughs) <laughs> we want to thank everyone for their support and for getting in touch with us. We've had a lot of great emails, great Facebook conversations about recent ep- episodes. You can like us on Facebook. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We, uh, we read every email. We don't always have the time, or I would say we seldom have the time to get back to it. Uh, all the people that that email us, but we do read them. Follow us on Twitter at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards. I don't, Dave seems a little less trollable, although we haven't got there hasn't been as many attempts. 
recently. Yeah, so. you know, it's a. I feel like I'm getting my serenity now. Moments. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this is a Seinfeld reference. You can support us in more tangible ways. Patreon.com slash VeryBadWizards. We really appreciate our Patreon um, supporters. I think we're going to do a Patreon listener-selected episode next time on intelligences where Dave will get... Well, I'm sure we'll both get ourselves into trouble. I'm uh, assigning you the bell curve. <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm assigning you the bell curve. <laughs> So you can support us that way. You can go to our support page, click on the Amazon link, do all your expensive shopping that you otherwise would, and we will get, or, or inexpensive shopping, and we will get a little cut of that. We don't have that yet set up abroad, but we do have it in the States. And you can also give us a one-time donation via PayPal. All of that is on our support page um, on the Very Bad Wizards website. Oh, uh, rate us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes. We've been going down a little bit in the iTunes rankings, and I don't like it. Dave seems very serene about that, too. Too serene, frankly. So rate us on iTunes, review us on iTunes, and subscribe to us, even if you don't listen on iTunes. Just uh, Yeah, we got a one-star review on iTunes because of your microphone technique. You think that was me? It probably was. <laughs> of course it's you. <laughs> You're the only one who goes in and out like that. Yeah, that was my bad. I'll try. I'm trying to keep my my mouth on yeah, there, but I also don't want to sound like like a heavy breather, like some yeah, pervert. Well, thank you all. We really appreciate the support. Um, and and keep it coming. Keep the comments coming. And Instagram, Instagram, uh, is that ever gonna <laughs> get back up and running? Yes, apparently. <laughs> so yeah, thanks to everybody. We and we'll be right back with Bob Wright. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I'm very excited about our guest for today, Robert Wright, because he had a big impact on the life of a young, adrift Tamler Summers. Longtime listeners might remember that I've told this story before, but I was in my early to mid-20s. I was trying to be like a playwright, then a fiction writer, maybe a science writer, but I couldn't commit to anything. I couldn't show any real persistence or dedication. I was like a millennial, kind of. Uh, (laughs) uh, My parents, a little concerned, 
about me at this time. And then my stepmother gave me this fantastic new book that had just come out called The Moral Animal. It's, it's, it's a great book. It was a bestseller. Introduced much of the world and, and certainly me to the burgeoning field of evolutionary psychology. And while it didn't introduce me to free will skepticism, it, it definitely ignited a passion in me to further explore that view. And a few years later, I went to grad school in philosophy, and I used a lot of the ideas in The Moral Animal to make an evolutionary case for skepticism about responsibility and free will in my dissertation. So enough about, <laughs> enough about me. It's all about me, I'm now realizing. <laughs> Uh, but uh, more books from Robert Wright would follow, Non-Zero and the Evolution of God. And his new book, Why Buddhism is True, which Dave and I have both read, can fairly be described, I think, as not unambitious. <laughs> it <laughs> high praise. You don't need to open the book to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to know the title, yeah. Yeah. So in that book, you make the case that Buddhist meditation and Buddhist teachings can improve your life, um, increase your well-being. It can give you a more accurate picture of metaphysical reality and a more accurate picture of moral reality. And there's also plenty of evolutionary psychology in there, too. So, Bob... Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast. And uh, I'm not sure whether the influence my book had on your life was in retrospect good or bad, but, you know, influence is... <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. It is what impact it is. <laughs> is better than no impact. You know, I'm sorry about the title of the book. It's obnoxious, but, you know, job one is to get their attention. And then you go <laughs> from there. And I will say, as long as it's a philosophy podcast, I think it's at least as defensible as consciousness explained. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we start there? Because you have a preface saying, like, here's what I mean and what I don't mean. But I feel like th like we should probably start there, just as you start the book there, which is what do you mean by true here? Yeah. I mean, it is ironic, uh, first of all, because Buddhist philosophy itself harbors is, in places a skepticism about the idea of uh, ultimate truth. Um, I guess, though, I've always had kind of a conservative conception of truth in the sense that I think, you know, so-called scientific truths are never really proved, right? They're just, right. they're just the best we can do at the time. Um, and I think, uh, fundamental claims made by Buddhism are, are defensible in that sense. I mean, so far as I can tell, I mean, <laughs> they've got it about right. That that includes the diagnosis of the human predicament, uh, the prescription, and some attendant uh, claims about the nature of the self uh, and the nature of the world out there. I mean, I guess the, the main thing I think, the thing I'm most willing to defend most strongly is the basic idea that uh, we do not see the world clearly. We do not see ourselves clearly. We do not have a clear conception of our own motivation in this thing we think of, our, of ourselves as ourself. And, and those failures of clarity do lead to suffering and what I would call bad behavior, right. you know, immoral behavior. And so the idea, the Buddhist program for clarifying your view of the world and of yourself in the process becoming happier and doing less bad stuff to other people I think that's 
that's on target. So it's some sort of like um, um, truth about the human condition or immoral, tr- um, some moral truth. I guess I guess maybe what you don't mean is the versions of Buddhism that 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 believe in metaphysical entities and stuff like you know that the wide ranging spiritual beliefs of non secular. Yeah, I, yeah, I make it clear in that uh, kind of preface thing you mentioned uh, that I'm not talking yeah. about reincarnation, not talking right. about the religious slash metaphysically exotic claims. There are what I think you could call metaphysical claims that I think are worth taking very seriously, but yeah. th- those are in the realm of kind of secular philosophy, I'd say. The not-self. The not-self and, and the notion of so-called emptiness. I want to get into those in some detail. I'm sort of curious when you started getting interested in Buddhism and meditation, because you know, this is something I've started doing on a, fairly, on a daily basis in the last year and a half. You're doing mindfulness meditation? Yeah, mindfulness meditation. When did that happen for you? Uh, I had never succeeded in meditating, although you're not supposed to talk about meditation that way, of course, in terms of success (laughs) and failure. But I had never managed to do it until finally I went to an actual one-week silent meditation retreat in 2003. And I had very dramatic experiences and felt totally blissed out and felt transformed and everything. And I've never lost my interest in it. There were times when my daily practice faded, but then I kind of picked it up again. I went to a retreat again in 2009, and since then I've been to a number of other retreats. I've been to a total of, you know, a little over two months worth of silent meditation retreats, all told. And I have a daily practice, but I personally would not have been able to get into it without uh, a silent meditation retreat, I think, because I, I have, you know, very, very poor attention span. I'm Focusing is a very hard thing for me to do. So retreats, yeah, I was going to ask that because does seem like it was important for you, both, I guess, in sustaining your everyday practice, but also in terms of some of the insights that you've arrived at. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I arrived at any original insights. Uh, I guess what I'd say is that I got a kind of an an inkling of a glimpse of uh, some of the more profound experiences that super, super committed meditators have. So, for example, the experience of not-self, like becoming convinced just through direct experience that the idea of the self is is confused and there is no self. I mean, I, I haven't had the full-fledged version of that, but being on retreat has given me uh, deeper insight into what those have ha- who have had that experience have experienced. And, and I guess the th- one thing I like about a retreat is it kind of gives you a sense that the daily meditation practice, which may feel just kind of therapeutic and mundane, like you get a little, you know, your your stress, you alleviate stress or you view anxiety from a little bit of a distance. You get a sense that those are actually potentially steps toward deeper and deeper experiences. Okay, there is a kind of a continuum between daily practice and these kinds of profound experiences reported by people who meditate all the time. That's one value I think that uh, going to a retreat has given me, in addition to just getting me interested in the whole thing. And one of the great things about the book is that you t- you talk about this, your personal experience throughout. Tenlo and I were talking about your, how, how we, we envy the, the voice that you have when, in your writing. It's just a very a very nice sort of sense of you talking to us. 
but it is autobiographical and it's sort of like you took this your interest in in evolutionary psychology and you started seeing these connections with buddhism i want to talk about that experience because i relate to it so well of that frustration of sitting there and you talk about sort of being at these silent retreats and not even being for like hours not being able to get past like the count of five or six on your breaths Mm -hmm. because you were so distracted I've never seriously meditated routinely, but I've I've often tried, and it is insane how easily distracted you can get when your only goal is to try to clear your mind and count your breath to ten. Mm-hmm. And and it, there's something that just frightens me about that, about how easy it is to fail. What's what seems to be such a, a task that we that should be so trivially easy. Yeah, it, it was really frustrating. I mean, especially since I was sitting there in that meditation hall with all these people who seemed to be better than me, and I'm sure most of whom were. I mean, it went on for days. Even even, even now, when I do my morning practice, I may go five minutes without successfully focusing on two, two breaths. I mean, I, I usually do get into the rhythm within 10, 15 minutes, but I'm, I'm just incredibly distractible. So, so I, you know, one thing I say in the book is if I can do this, anyone can do it. You may need to go right. to a retreat to do it, but... I am I am the guinea pig. One of the horrible stories, the tragedies I thought of the book was when you described having a foreigner song stuck in your head at oh, one man. of these retreats. <laughs> and I think I might I, I might have ended it all at that point. Um, but so it's it's a testament to your courage. It was tough. This can happen on retreat. The songs can because you know at a, at, a, at this kind of meditation retreat you're getting zero input from the world. No email, no news from the world, nothing. You're not talking to anyone. You're hearing the teachers say things a little bit. Basically, there's no fresh input. So if you get a, stu- a song stuck in your head, you can be in trouble, especially if it's one you, you <laughs> hate, such as Feels Like the First Time by Foreigner. Would you like me to hum a few bars? No, I, I absolutely not. Like, I'm really susceptible to that. How about It's a Small World After I would have preferred that. so let's talk about what some of these things mean like not self you know this is always one of the things that flummoxes people who try to make sense of buddhism and their and buddhist philosophy yeah okay well it is assumed i guess i mean buddhist philosophy has unfolded over many many centuries in many many lands so there are you know there are different versions of things and different philosophical claims made in different traditions so a lot of things have been said about not-self. And there is the argument that if you look at the first, the Buddha's first discourse on not-self, and we don't even know for sure that that reliably reflects what he said, but but the argument has been made that if you look at it closely, he's actually not making a metaphysical argument. He's just saying, you know, these various parts of you, feelings, thoughts, and so on, you'll be better off if you don't think of them as part of yourself. That is, right. that's not a majority view, but it's a minority view. And, and, and I say that for two reasons. One is to convey how I, I'm not going to be able to to give you one single version of not-self. That is the essential Buddhist version, first of all. But secondly, to say that this is kind of my view of the idea, is that use it for its practical value. Don't worry for now, if you're starting your practice, about whether the self exists. Just ask yourself, is this anxiety uh, really useful to me? Is it a, a uh, is it conducive to a clear view of the world? 
if the answers are no, don't hesitate to use meditation to no longer consider it part of yourself, which is readily doable. That kind of thing is within the reach of a, you know, committed but not maniacally committed meditator. Can I read you a couple quotes that, you know, it's these kinds of passages that that sometimes puzzle me, although I also kind of understand them too. Um, so here's here's one you say, if you go, if you do go on a vipassana, I don't know if I'm pronouncing v- that vipassana. right. Vipassana. Vipassana. Vipassana meditation retreat and slowly, haltingly get better at focusing on your breath, <clears throat> it will seem more like your mind isn't wandering within its own terrain so much as being hijacked by intruders, right? And and here you're talking, this, this brings in the modular mind stuff, but I guess my question is, what's being hijacked by intruders? And who <laughs> does it seem, there is this thing it still seems like that perceives that it's being hijacked by intruders. So there does seem to still be some self or some essence that's noticing the fact that these thoughts are coming and going and feelings are coming and going. So what is is that? Is that also an illusion? Well, uh, yeah, this paradox pervades discussion of this. I mean, in that, yeah. in that discourse of the Buddhas, I uh, said, you know... Uh, that I mentioned, you know, the Buddha says, uh, he who does all these things goes through all of the constituents of human experience and basically says those are not the self, he is liberated. And you're like, well, wait, who is liberated, right? I mean, uh, where is the he if we've just said that he is nowhere in any of the things that constitute human experience, including consciousness, according to that dialogue. So uh, these paradoxes pop up. Buddhists have ways of addressing uh, them to varying degrees of unsatisfactoriness, I would say. Um, I would say, look, if you get to a point where your consciousness is uh, liberated from all the things that push and pull unproductively, and you got to the point where feelings were things you could kind of choose to be guided by, but had sufficient kind of a detachment, in a sense, from to make that decision... And, and so, too, with thoughts, even. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, as a practical matter, you'd be, uh, you know, in pretty good shape. Now, the, the question remains, well, wait a second, isn't the, con- even if it's only a witness consciousness, just watching all the stuff going on, isn't that something? I would say yes, but, but it seems that way to me. I share your intuition. If you talk to people right. who have had these deep experiences and and some of whom have them, according to them, on an ongoing basis, and these are pretty credible uh, accounts, you know, they'll just kind of at that point have trouble explaining to you what it's like. You're like, uh, like some of them will say, well, it's a feeling that like consciousness is a universal thing and your mind is just one point of access to it. Or they'll say... Uh, you know, they'll say various things, but they won't say, they won't just say what I would think you would say is that, yeah, well, consciousness, there is that and you're never going to leave that. You know, I mean, have you glimpsed that even if you can't like our language might not be suited to ter- to try to articulate it. But have yeah. you glimpsed it at any point what um, they might be talking about? I-, I haven't glimpsed that a thing I've glimpsed is uh, a couple of things. I mean, one, like just taking something like anxiety and getting to a point where you're just looking at it 
with complete indifference in the sense that it's still there, but it's just no longer causing you to suffer or even physical right. pain. Just like viewing it the way you would view uh, uh, abstract art in a museum. That. And then at the other kind of end of the spectrum, I mean, that that's an experience about kind of the disaggregation of what we traditionally call the self. Then there is the kind of dissolution of the bounds of the self. So I've been at a retreat and had the feeling, you know, wait a second. And this gets a little into the extended mind uh, thing that you guys talked about recently. But um, although in a different way than than Chalmers and his co-author, I, I think, meant it. But uh, but I've had the, the feeling that like, wait a second. So my foot is tingling and there's a bird out there singing. Suddenly the bird seems like just as much a part of me as the tingling or, or, or the tingling, maybe you could say feels like no more a part of me. I mean, right. the, the, the self internally feels diffuse to begin with. I'm not really identifying with any of these, these feelings a whole lot. Um, and in that sense, uh, I can, I can identify with that bird singing just as much. So there's a sense in which the actual subjective experience of mind is, has, has expanded at a basic level. They're both senses. They're the sense of feeling with the tingling in your foot and the sense of hearing. The, and you can definitely make it so that those two things don't seem like they're, they're totally different. Right. Say, first of all, it isn't just the hearing in your ear. It's like the place where right. the song comes from seems as much a part of me. And that's not part of my ordinary oh, okay. experience. Okay. Got it. And so it, it was a radically different uh experience and i just want to pause on the moral implication so people who who feel this this dissolution of the bounds of self these very serious meditators who may go around feeling this every hour of the day pretty consistently report that it involves a a, a change in the way the way you accord relative significance to you and other beings which is to say suddenly you don't seem more important than them you don't you don't really care so much more about your welfare than about their welfare. And, and that's, that's partly, I think, because getting to that point in your experience involves letting go of various self, well, flagrantly selfish impulses, maybe like hatred, lust, whatever, uh, uh, but also more subtly self-related things. Like like if you look at all the things that are going through your mind when you're failing to focus on your breath, almost all of them are about you. They're like, you're worried that somebody doesn't like you. You're mad at somebody for something they did. You're fantasizing about how your future triumph. It, it's all like about you. These people have like let that go. And, and I think that's related to the fact that uh, when they get to this point, you know, it's funny. It's not that they necessarily become these kumbayaishly loving people. It's just that, at a minimum, they're not really part of the problem anymore. They're not doing all of these self-centered things. One, one of the, one of the things that I like about the book is how you sort of very openly describe yourself as fairly misanthropic, and so it seems like, like one of the goals is kind of bringing dicks to being like kind of not dicks anymore this is my goal <laughs> that, in life be... to move myself into the second category i'm <laughs> i'm part way there and time but, is running out so i want to i want to take a, a little bit of a step back because um i don't want to give the uh, the idea to listeners that, that that this is just another text on on buddhism right because in this 
book, you're making a very specific claim, which is we could distinguish what perhaps these spiritual or metaphysical or quasi-religious even ideas could improve life, right? It could make you better if you just started thinking of yourself that way, um, right? There might be a variety of techniques, or you could each be like a like the ultimate Westerner and, and use meditation just to like, you know, instead of Xanax, right? Um, uh, and, and in a very pragmatic way, it could be that these practices improve, um, improve your life. Uh, you could even do it in a selfish way, start out that way. But, but your claim is deeper. That is, your claim is that, that Buddhism has stumbled onto truths about the human condition that we are more certain of as truths now that we understand the fundamental human psychology, right? So, so it is that getting a sense of evolutionary psychology uh, specifically and how the mind evolved to be what it is gets to a place that is surprisingly or unsurprisingly maybe consistent with the Buddha's thoughts. So, uh, so you have a, a long, a couple of cha- throughout many chapters, you talk about emotion right, and the evolution of emotion. And, and you make a point that I think is a good one to start with about, uh, about this specifically, which is, look, like emotions evolve by natural selection to keep us alive, to keep us eating and having sex, passing on our genes. <clears throat> And so they're accurate or rational or, or reasonable or appropriate in that sense. But they never really, natural selection could give a shit about, about uh, fundamental reality or long-term happiness or any of the things that we care about. And so in this sense, even though these emotions keep us alive, they bind us. They, they keep us from seeing something that's truly there. So I want to talk about that link because I think that, that's the important link that you're making that will... You're almost give, giving these Buddhist ideas a new leg to stand on, right? I hope so, yeah. And, you know, along those lines, I want to say quickly on this, you know, I was saying there are various incarnations of the not-self idea in Buddhism. One of them is just the idea that it's it's illusory to think you are the doer of deeds and the thinker of thoughts, okay? And, and and you know, and I think that's that's one of the, the, the that, that the conscious self, the conscious you is the generator of thoughts and of actions. That's something that in particular has come into uh, doubt, uh, and I think uh, comes into particular doubt in light of evolutionary psychology. So I wanted to quickly say that. As for, did you want to follow up on that, David? Or I mean, there's there's something in the description of the self as you you know I'm no Buddhist scholar, right? but from what you said, there's something about when when the Buddha's talking about self, he's talking about, and in his dialogues, they're talking about an aspect of of a person that is volitional, that is the, the person in control. And so there is a sense of self in which I, I agree that that one of the things that we know about psychology prob- probably from the last 50 years is that um, the amount of agency and control that we have over our own psychological processes and perhaps our behavior is much, much smaller than we thought. It's a little bit different than just saying self as the as the I, like the versus the me, right? The, the William James's classic distinction, the subjective experiencer, and so a lot of what you talk about and is is I think tackling this notion that we have agency, that we have. In a way, I mean, Buddhist philosophy doesn't really tackle that question head on, uh, as a rule. Uh, but am I right that they seem to speak of it as that? aspect because when there's when well, when the buddha is sort of like tr- trying to to uh 
show how all of these aspects of self aren't what you, what you thought. Mm-hmm. He's talking about things that you have control over. Yeah. Are you saying, like, did you really have control yeah, over Yeah, it? no, no, you're right. What, what I meant when I said they don't tackle it head on is they have not tackled the free will versus determinism question the way Western philosophy has. I would call it implicitly pretty deterministic sounding to me, yeah. Buddhist philosophy. In a certain sense, it is uh, more Western than people appreciate. I mean, one thing that pervades Buddhist philosophy is just awareness of causality. And that's one thing that shapes the conception of of self, I think, is an awareness that you're always being influenced by something. And you may think of yourself as some autonomous source of action and thought, but the fact is the stuff going on in your head is a reaction to stuff uh, that ultimately originates in the outside world. And if you see it as just this, like, you know, uh, this, this causal, this flow of causal forces, and you map it out like that, well, it's, then it's like, where is this thing we think of as the self that, that intuitively is supposed, at least, is supposed to have, is supposed to actually generate some stuff, right? So right. that is, that is, I think, very much in the spirit of Buddhist philosophy, even though they don't get into free will per se much. And also very Humean. As you point out, it's very much in the spirit of David Hume and against the spirit of uh, David's hero, Emmanuel Kant. Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't know you, you're, a, you're a big Kant fan, David. So that means you can uh, actually a, understand uh, what he's saying? We, we should talk <laughs> No, I'm, I am actually, Tamler, it's more aptly described as Tamler is a huge fan of calling me a Kant fan because I, because I believe in actual reason every once in a while. Yeah, well, it's a very effective <laughs> tactic on Tamler's uh, part because my opinion of you plummeted. <laughs> When I heard that, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. This interview is already a success in my it's, a, it's an ad cons it attack. It's a, it's a, uh, so, can we back yeah. up to the point about the, ev- the connection between evolutionary psychology and some of your views? Because I do think you would get the sense reading your book that evolutionary psychology provides a great deal of support for some of the metaphysical claims of Buddhism. And if some other psychological theory of the mind were true, maybe a more general intelligence theory of the mind were true, that would somehow provide less evidence in favor of Buddhist metaphysics. And I wonder if you think that's right or if that's just the impression that I got. Um, There's something about the modular theory of the mind that comes out of evolutionary psychology that you think is particularly consistent. Informative or insight, yeah. Yeah, well, there there are a couple of kinds of connections. I mean, one is the one that David started to allude to before I kind of changed the subject, I guess, which is just that, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology drives home that the mind was not designed to see things clearly per se. Okay, it was designed, you know, the brain was designed to get genes in the next generation. If illusion will do that job, then illusion is fine. And, and we think that explains certain illusions we have about the self. Uh, we think that explains certain moral intuitions, certain kinds of views we have about different people who have different kinds of relationships to us and so on. So, first of all, evolutionary psych- psychology drives, is very consistent with the Buddhist claim that, look, if you pay close attention, you'll realize you're not seeing the world clearly. There's that. Secondly, the, there's the Buddhist claim that not seeing the world clearly, we, we don't seem to naturally see the world clearly. We don't seem to be naturally be able to sustain happiness. Buddhism claims those two are related. 
Again, it's consistent with evolutionary psychology. We're not designed to be happy. You know, evolution doesn't care how happy uh, we are or are not. No theory of the mind really says you want to be happy, right? Like, no theory of the well, mind want says to, you want, want to have to an actu- accurate picture of the world. Like, Freudianism doesn't say you want to have an accurate picture of the world no. or you want to be happy, right? That view of the mind that says there's a view of the mind that is inconsistent with evolutionary psychology, but it's not the modular one. And that is that, like, look, we evolved this general purpose calculator in our head. We learn through conditioning. There's nothing special or modular um, I think one of the things that both of us were thinking uh, as we were reading this is if you had a general purpose statistical learning slash classical conditioning, operant conditioning view of humanity, mm-hmm. is there a self there? No, I think pretty much pretty much the end of dualism was the end of finding a magical self in the mind. Right. I don't I don't know that that you need evolutionary psychology, specifically not the evolutionary modular view um, to get us there. I think all you need to do is reject the notion that our minds aren't made up of uh, that that the self isn't somehow just a magic like sort of a an em- emergent thing property of a bunch of cells firing in unison. Right? Isn't that enough? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I would say one thing evolutionary psychology can do that Freudianism by itself. Well, maybe that's slightly misleading. One thing evolutionary psychology can do better than anything else, I think, is explain why things are the way they are, how, yeah. you know, how, how we came to be this way, which is of, of interest and even can even actually facilitate a meditative uh, practice, I think. So, so there's that just, just, it, it, it just kind of making total sense that yes, you're right. Of course, gratification would be fleeting. Of course we would be, uh, everything would always be unsatisfactory. We'd always want more. I mean, that that's just a kind of narrative value to people sometimes. So it's kind of worth saying, but I agree that uh, it's not the subtlest contribution that evolutionary psychology can make by any means. Here, I think, among the things that I think are subtler and more interesting, uh, they actually get to the two things, one of which was said by each of you, and in both cases, I kind of changed the subject and we didn't get back to them. Uh, It was what you said about feelings, David, and what Tamler said about the modular mind. So as for the modular mind, that, of course, is just a model within evolutionary psychology, but it's one that certainly makes sense in terms of evolutionary psychology. It's it's often misunderstood. I hesitate to use the term modular because the very phrase evokes various things that are actually misconceptions about the model, but the basic idea is that, you know, the, the, the mind has these functional things that are kind of off doing their own work to some extent. And sometimes there's even competition among them uh, for, you know, control of consciousness, you might say, or, or for access to consciousness. Um, right. And that is that model is very consistent with uh, meditative experience. I mean, one thing you hear meditation teachers say all the time is, Thoughts think themselves. And I don't, you know, casual daily meditation might not give you a very clear idea of what they mean. If you went on a retreat, you would probably more often have the experience of kind of just kind of seeing a thought come in out of nowhere. Um, But the modular conception of the mind explains why, yeah, thoughts would be kind of propelled into consciousness um, by various modules. Uh, the, the realm of consciousness is not the generator of them. They are coming from different places. Another 
another thing, uh, and here I think um, Buddhism is really, uh, I think this part of Buddhism is underrated because it's, it's on the one hand not all that explicit in Buddhism as commonly presented, uh, but I think it's there very much in Buddhist practice and philosophy. And here is the idea, this is the idea uh, of how pervasively affect infiltrates cognition, okay? I think there was a time when people thought, well, you got your limbic system, you got your prefrontal cortex, you know, you got your, you got emotion, you got cognition, sometimes they bump into each other, uh, you want, you want your, you know, your, your rational part to be in charge, and I think more and more we understand, and here Hume, I think, got the picture, uh, but I think Buddhism did too. I think more and more we understand that thoughts and perceptions tend to have kind of affective valence. That is, that you're, you're, you're going to be much more likely to see after intensive meditation. I think that's, uh, well, maybe I should stop there. I, I, I want to ultimately go further with that because I think it, that, that is a, leads to a, an important part of what I consider to be the kind of validation of Buddhism from evolutionary psychology, but I can, I can stop there if you want to. Because the, the valence is determined by the evolutionary function or, the, or, or some sort of evolutionary story about what those thoughts are. What those thoughts are and how you, how you feel about the thought w is how natural selection wants you to feel, or something along those lines. In a certain sense, idea? yes. The, 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 you know, I, I think, and I made this argument in The Moral Animal, but and others have made it, uh, but the, once you really realize that all our feelings were given to us by natural selection, in a sense, you should interrogate these feelings skeptically. It doesn't mean that none of them will be... Uh, guides either to behavior that will make you happy. It doesn't mean that none of them will be guides to morally defensible behavior. But it does mean you can't assume either of those things, and you can't even assume it about the feelings that feel most like they are good moral guides, right? The moral intuitions, the, the, even, the even the sense of justice, the intuition that good deeds should be punished and bad deeds should be rewarded. I think that is a generally defensible practice to punish evildoers and reward people to do good. But, but the idea that retribution is a moral good in and of itself, even if it has no good practical, practical effect, is, I think, a legacy of natural selection. And you shouldn't naively follow it. So it's a de debunking story, which we actually just talked about. You want to debunk some of those moral intuitions by saying they're the product of evolution. They're not capturing real, genuine moral insight. They are just the product of how our ancestors got their genes to the next generation. They may happen to correspond to moral behavior. I wouldn't right. dismiss them because they're evolved. I just would not accept them, given the fact that they're evolved. You'd be evolved. suspicious of them. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, they should all be tre uh, treated suspiciously. And, and, you know, um, I mean, there can still be a substantial role, I, at least I hope, on your account um, for the kinds of emotions that, right? So there's one way in which, of like, our emotional system might be the product of natural selection, but there is a substantial amount of emotional response that is due to an individual's personal history, right? That, it, that is, the, the content, the, the, the triggers, all of those things could be quite a bit influenced by by the particular details of your upbringing or your environment. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, and of course, there are programs presumably designed by natural selection that translate 
early experience or, or recent experience into behavioral proclivities and into affective uh, reactions to things. I'm not claiming that explains everything about the way your no. experience <clears throat> might change your, your perspective, but, but of course, that's, that's a big part of the story. Yeah. But it seems like what you're saying about evolutionary psychology would be true of a lot of different theories. I mean, it's hard to think of a live theory of the mind, at least that I'm aware of, that if that's true, then when I have a moral intuition or a moral feeling, I'll be like, that's probably right. Right. <laughs> there, there, are a few mo- there are a few modern theories of psychology that add yeah. validation to moral intuitions. Is Right. Right. Few, if any. But you do you right. think that some of them should make you less skeptical, at least, than the evolutionary psychological story? I think a lot of them might just not make you think about it one way or the other. I think nothing makes you, nothing grabs your attention as much as understanding, like, where the feelings came from. I mean, a lot of, a lot of theor- psychological theories just don't comment on that. The only one that the only ones that do are explicitly Darwinian, whether evolutionary psychology as we know it or in a more primitive way, Freudianism, actually. There's value in understanding what created us and what the criteria of our creation were. Um, and, and by the way, I'm, the, the book, I, I'm not claiming uh, that only evolutionary psychology adds to the validation of Buddhist philosophy and psychology, some of it is just modern experimental psychology, right? right. I, I mean, there's, like a lot of a lot of, of a lot of the yeah. stuff that that causes you to be skeptical of how much in charge the conscious mind is is it was just uh, studies done by people who may or may not have have had a Darwinian inclination. I think a certain right. amount of the uh, appreciation of how subtly affect can influence cognition didn't have a particularly Darwinian inspiration. So I'm saying modern psychology, broadly speaking, uh, is is pretty consonant with Buddhism. But I think evolutionary psychology adds adds a lot. So can we talk a little bit about the? I mean, because on the one hand, it seems as if you could mount the argument, and you discuss this in the book, but for the sake of discussion here, um, you could say, well, look, there's no magic, reliable guide to truth. The closest we have is the way that our minds were built to perceive the universe. And um, we know that sometimes, for instance, our emotions are triggered inappropriately. Um, But we could use the example of our perceptual systems, um, like eyesight, where you say, look, there are plenty of visual illusions that fool us, but it doesn't undermine the visual system to know that it evolved in order to track light and darkness and movement and color um, because it actually led to our survival. Um, it seems as if you could say that the, the very existence of inappropriate visual perceptions in at least those fields only serves to bolster their uh, truth-tracking ability. It's harder with an emotion to say that it's true, as you discuss in the book. Like, what does it mean to say that an emotion is true? Um, but one of the things that you could say is that um, as a motivational guide, yeah, it may not be tracking, uh, it, it may not be a guide to happiness, but it, it's not so bad a guide to interpersonal interpersonal relationships. Like Bob Frank's book, 
passion within reason you know he he tells the evolutionary story of emotions and and it ends up concluding like these are more rational than we thought like these are actually serving an important function and right. in some sense they are uh they are good guys like what it means to be angry at getting cheated could be excessive but it is the very feature of its excessiveness that makes it effective um so you could say it's not there to be to to make you happy and it's hard to know what would make an emotion true but it seems as if they're they're good and, and tracking what, something about the they're, world they're tracking accurate. something about the world in our in our social circumstances right and we know when they're erring yeah. we could correct for that but well, they're not a delusion feelings well yeah i don't know i mean they uh Anxiety leads people to hugely exaggerate the likelihood of various things happening, like catastrophes befalling them. Right. Um, and and it's because, as you point out, false positives are, are, are a good way for natural selection. Well, that, that's one reason <laughs> yeah. you, they may exaggerate. I'm also arguing that there are things about the modern environment that make feelings even less reliable guides uh, than they would have been in the environment of evolution. And I grant that from the point of view of, of the organism operating in its natural environment feelings are often you know pretty good if you want to use as your as your operational definition of the truth of a feeling does it lead to behavior that is good for the organism which after all is largely the darwinian function of feelings if you take like kin out who also share your genes out of the picture you could say that roughly speaking um that is the function uh of feelings yeah they often do a pretty uh, good job now, but often they don't, especially in a modern environment. Uh, and moreover, there's the question of: do, Are they morally defensible, even when they are serving your interests? I think all of these feelings, all of these questions, arise in Buddhist philosophy or illuminated uh, by a Darwinian uh, perspective. But but I also want to say, I, I, there's uh, I get the sense that you think it's kind of easy to tell when our feelings are misleading us. And and that I emphatically want to reject. It's not. It's not. But I want to well, know well, what I the want to add one more thing. It's not even yeah, easy sure, sure. to tell when when feelings are there at all. It's not they so subtly influence our perceptions that it's not even easy to tell when they're doing anything is is I think an implicit claim in Buddhism that I think is right. Right. So I, I guess where I'm starting I, I'm starting from the analogy that our visual system also evolved and it also can lead us astray, and it also is sort of in, inconsistent with the environment in which we find ourselves now. It can often, like our eyes are fooled, but that we don't conclude that about, right? There, there is a way in which we say they, they are reliable. I mean, we rely on visual illusions to watch movies and stuff, obviously. Um, but maybe it's just that the criteria to demarcate when they're accurate and when they're not is easier but I don't want to abandon emotions as delusions um, because on the one hand, it, you could just say, well, because there, because it's not a, a, an explicit, an emotion isn't an explicit belief. You can never tell whether there, you know, it's matches with truth, right? That's just a feature of emotions. There, a feeling doesn't have a, a truth proposition. No, you you can ask yourself, it. is it serving my interests? Which is what feelings, again, were broadly speaking designed to do. Yeah. And, and they're motivating, right? They like we, we, our organism relies on the motivational force of, of the emotive system, um, in order to get behavior going. 
And so, so I, I guess wh- one way to say this is I, I fear that that you could swing in the opposite direction of actually reinforcing this cognition versus emotion uh, distinction and saying like what you need is detachment from your emotion. The way you do that is you yourself use your reason and, and calm your calm your voice in your internal voice and observe. It sounds almost Kantian to me <laughs> to, to keep your emotions in check like that. Or Plato, certainly. I'm, yeah. I'm a fan of the rational control of your life. I just think it's harder than people appreciate and it's it's and being aware of the problem doesn't lead very straightforwardly to a solution which is one thing reason that for me at least a daily meditation practice is helpful but let me let's just take a concrete example that's right in front of us the current state of like political discourse in america okay it's very yeah there's polarization it's tribalized people on both sides they're not thinking when they see whether it's a Trump supporter seeing a piece of pro-Trump news and sharing it right away, or it's a Trump opponent seeing a piece of anti-Trump news and sharing it on social media right away, none of them are thinking, right, that, you know, the feelings I have toward Trump are the reason I'm not inspecting this news closely before sharing it. Nobody's thinking that. Even though when you reflect on it, it's actually pretty obvious, right? I mean, if you pause and ask yourself, how do I feel at the moment of sharing? There's like a, yeah, that asshole, it's, right? It's only obvious to me when other people do it. Right. Because when I do it, it's just like my, it's it's the fucking noumenal realm in the reason, right. it's calculation, you, and I'm right. You are in touch with ultimate <laughs> truth when you do it. That That is kind of... The feeling, but I think if, if a daily meditation practice can make you at least somewhat more likely to stop and feel what's doing the work at that point. I, I completely agree with that. And there are times when our feelings and our loyalties distort our sense of reality. I don't think anybody could deny that who is thinking sensibly about the topic. I guess, I guess two questions that I see Dave getting at. One is, how do we even determine when a feeling is tracking some sort of truth and when it's deluding us or distorting reality? And second, sometimes it sounds like feelings are always delusions in when you right. read some sort of Buddhist uh, text. And that's and then if, if, feel, if feeling is always a delusion, that seems like a problem too because when my daughter makes like a great sarcastic joke and i feel this like overwhelming <laughs> sense of love for her i mean yeah i get that that's partly because of kin selection and all of that but that doesn't seem like the feeling is in any i, I don't feel in any way deluded by that feeling she made a great joke and i love her and that feeling is uh, is a reflection of that so there's got to be a some sort of way of figuring out where the the boundary is between these distorting anxiety over or over shark attacks and ebola and powerpoints and powerpoints <laughs> and versus versus just like right. these feelings that also kind of make life worth living yeah no i don't uh i don't argue for abandoning uh parental love 
I mean, on the other hand, you're in Texas, right? So you know about the woman who some decades ago was, I think, convicted of conspiring to murder. Was it the mother of her daughter's rival for cheerleader? It was some kind of cheerleader. I mean, they take cheerleading very seriously in Texas. I went to high school there. Anyway, that woman went too far. Northeastern stereotype. (laughs) Somewhere on that spectrum between laughing at your daughter's joke and conspiring to kill somebody on behalf of your daughter, I think there's actually a lot of... A lot of behavior you might want to reflect on uh, that, 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 that may or may not be advisable, even from the point of view of your, your child's uh, welfare. But that's. Yep. Yeah. Bob, you said you said something in this book that made me actually think more about this than I think I've ever thought. Because one way to tackle Tamler's question and what I was getting at is to bite the bullet and just say, yeah, like. To the extent that these emotions, they, they're they're misfiring. Like there's a way in which a Buddhist could say they're always misfiring, and that the emotions that you have of love for your partner, of of devotion to your offspring, yeah, like those are also delusions. And you ask explicitly. So let's just take it seriously. What if you did? What if you were a bit less devoted to your own kids, right? right. And. It wasn't as offensive a thought to me as I, th- I would have predicted. Like when Singer does it. Yeah. Well, there's, especially when I think of other people's devotion to their kids, I, I also think, you know, would it help a little bit of detachment? <laughs> it might even help the kid half the time. Yeah. It might not not to mention that they might spend the time they're not spending on their kid to, you know, do something good for somebody else. But uh, is that but, what determines whether it's true or not? Or tracking truth, or delusion. Well, I mean, here or not, we get or, into or, philosophy. I mean, it, it seems to me that God forbid. Yeah, that's what uh, we're. That's what we God, do here. God, uh, yeah, and this is the last <laughs> podcast I'd want to do that on. But, but uh, you know, I mean, my own view is, look, uh, seems to be a pretty good default surmise is that all other things being equal, you should assume that everyone's welfare is equally important. Any given human being's welfare is as important as the next. Now, you might, if you, you know, are utilitarian, as I more or less am, you might come up with some special considerations. Oh, but this person's about to go save 100,000 people, so, okay, they get, the, they, they get to catch the cab and you don't. But, but, um, but, but, uh, but the point is, of course, that, uh, you know, natural selection has shaped our minds to depart from that ideal in a billion ways. Some of them are so subtle that that they're just not they're not obvious to us it's not obvious to us when we are following the dictates of natural selection and i'm not saying okay. by the way that it's practical or realistic to expect us all to you know right of any moral not. system has to take into account the practical difficulty of doing things that that is right. among the costs of doing things and look we have this thing called uh family love it works it's a pretty efficient system that i am here in this house Two daughters, wife, we take care of each other. There's a lot of non-zero sumness harvested through that. We drive each other to the airport. I, I, I'm not against any of that. Uh, I, I'm just saying... That's beautiful. That, thank you, thank you. I, I, <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, testament to the, the value of family. Uh, yeah, that you drive each other to the airport. Uh, yeah. that's, that's why God created families. <laughs> the, the, uh, you mean the Buddha. With Uber, we don't really need families anymore, you know? <laughs> Well, there is there is that. I mean, by the way, you, you, you've hinted at the so-called nihilism problem of Buddhism. Like, wait a second. 
it, it, that's kind of what I wanted to yeah. get to, to as well, because it, you seem to end with the like, okay, let's not be tribal and partial. And I, and I, just for the record, that one of the, the very first note I took was was at the beginning. You say tribalism is is one of the big problems to be solved here, if not the biggest problem. And I totally agree with you as well. But what does what gets you from going all the way to, you know, if if the if the Buddhist monk can have you know, can perform immolation and burn himself and, and, and sit still. And then if you, there's no boundaries between self and other, what is to prevent me from not giving a fuck about other people? So you're concerned that if uh, we start making progress on this problem of all these people sharing fake news and saying horrible things about each other and the internet will be on a slippery slope to them just sitting in their bedroom going, no, no, no. I don't see any reason to get up in the morning, you know? I'm just, no. I'm just saying... Yeah, no, no, no. I'm talking about taking the Buddhist beliefs to their natural conclusion, yeah. which is right. to which is which I don't think will ever happen because my point is just, it's not a practical problem. But you're right; it is a serious intellectual question about Buddhism that gets asked. I actually uh, address it at some length in a footnote. I was thinking about making an appendix, but uh, you know how many you you two are among the very few people who who care. Probably I, I address the nihilism question. I, I uh, there's no way of uh, entirely uh, satisfactorily dismissing it. I mean, I will say that two things, like the people, uh, you know, I, I, I got to know some people a little who I think it is safe to say are people of great meditative attainment. In some cases, it was like confirmed by brain scan, like like their right. default mode networks are just quiet when they're not even meditating, okay? Right. But, um, they're actually just brain damage patients. They're, you know, if, who knows? A stroke can accomplish <laughs> the same thing sometimes. But, uh, but uh, I will say two things. They are not people without joy and a sense of humor and commitments to values. And they are not, uh, they also tend to be, uh, seem pretty highly motivated. Now, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe that's because uh, the sample uh, sampling bias, you know, the people who come to your attention, other people are kind of out there maybe talking about Buddhism. But I I'm convinced that you can go way farther along the path than I'll ever go and not have to worry about lacking motivation to get up in the morning and not, well, worrying about becoming a horrible person is a, is, is a little more challenging. I mean, there have definitely been people who used meditative prowess uh, to exploit people more effectively. I, I think right. it's not a guaranteed outcome that someone who makes this meditative progress becomes a better person. I think it tends to happen, but I think it's not guaranteed. And there have been great meditation teachers who sexually exploited people and so on. That is a concern. It's a concern, but it's not like that's in every walk of life. And when you have people in position of power... That you know, some people are going to exploit it, and I don't think it would be fair to expect Buddhism to be a give a hundred percent guarantee that that they would turn you into a better person rather than a worse person, because no, no practical philosophy can do that. But can I go back to what you say that most people that you've been in contact with, and I I think this is certainly the sense that I get from from talking to people and reading about this stuff is they, they tend to be good, warm people and they don't seem like, you know, they've lost uh, a lust for life, an appreciation of life or an appreciation of the people around them. I, I would say, though, that isn't that in part because of their just human beings by nature 
have a natural sense of empathy, a natural sense of 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 joy, and that that also has evolved, right? You know, that is also a product of evolution and natural selection. Certainly empathy is something that we've evolved, that we share with other primates and, 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 other, uh, and other mammals and other types of species as well. So, you know, getting back to this idea that just because it's a product of evolution, we shouldn't, we shouldn't discard it automatically. It does seem like some of these feelings are also the good and if 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 they didn't have that if 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 you if you found that the people who meditated got to this point where they just didn't seem like they gave a fuck about anybody around them it would be like okay well that's not that's not for me and that i don't know if that in the sense that we can make sense of moral reality that doesn't seem to reflect it any better than posting shit on Twitter about Trump. Right. I mean, one way it's, you know, the value of mindfulness meditation is described. And by the way, the book is about mindfulness meditation uh, and not other kinds of meditation. But, well, it's about Vipassana meditation, which is very closely related to mindfulness meditation and and makes heavy use of mindfulness meditation. Uh, That is the kind of meditation that I think is best for, uh, for, you know, there's an old kind of, uh, I don't know, it's not a, Funny enough to be a joke, maybe, but the idea is Tibetan Buddhism is for artists, Zen is for poets, Vipassana is for psychologists. It's the meditation, the kind of meditation that's best suited to um, viewing the mind. And one thing that is said on behalf of uh, mindfulness meditation is that, look, use it to choose which feelings you engage with. And, and that's consistent with what you're saying. Of course, there are some wonderful feelings we have, uh, you know, from the standpoint of any reasonable moral philosophy. And those can be cultivated. Now, um, that's a, uh, not, well, the question of like whether true enlightenment leaves all those feelings, you know, how it is that that leaves all those feelings intact is a compli- more complicated question. Assuming something like true enlightenment actually exists. And I'm nodding. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on that point. But as a practical matter, I encourage people to do what you're, what you're suggesting, which is like, observe your feelings, decide which ones you're better off without, decide which ones are distorting your view of the world, not necessarily in a perceptual sense, maybe in a moral sense, and go with the feelings that you think are good uh, guides to your own happiness and or to good moral behavior. That yeah, the, just the mere fact of observing, I think, is is so critical to to the, even the fact that it's a that it's a foreign uh, experience for most people to sit still mm-hmm. and and observe thoughts is is pretty amazing. I I've been rewatching The Sopranos, um, uh, the the run of The Sopranos, and one of the themes of that show is is really there are a lot of people who are very very petty. Right. And pettiness is the opposite of, of, of mindfulness, really, to me. It is getting absolutely lost in the emotion that you're having right now. That is, you, you scratched my car or, you know, um, my mom keeps calling me or it's losing yourself with, with zero reflection in every little problem. And the, the, in that series, Everybody goes through what we would what we would have considered just existentially threatening events, and all you see is that they go right. I think it captures the human condition very well. You, people go right back to their unreflective self. 
if there's anything about the human condition is our amazing ability to fall right back into this pettiness. So just the mere act of, of sustained reflection, I think can bring the little experience I have with meditation. That's what brings the peace. But I, I guess, yeah, it's, I don't think at all that Buddhist monks who are awesome meditators are any less compassionate. I just wonder if it entails that if it actually, you know, it seems as if you want to stop right before you get to the, uh, to giving up all attachments to hum- to to this world, right? You you kind of stop stop yourself because it seems to entail like that. It's I mean, when you think about what it means to go out to even be part of a monastery and just and spend time not talking to anybody. There's one sense which is a profoundly selfish thing to do, right? Yeah, if there are people who need you and you're not there for them, I guess. Uh, on the other well, hand, you're you not could... causing any trouble. <laughs> right but i mean you you could be like setting up malaria we'll take that from a lot of <laughs> I, I suppose you <laughs> i can think of people for whom that would be a moral improvement to just wall themselves <laughs> off from all other human beings this is Sorry. your dog needs some mindfulness meditation hey <laughs> i have two dogs and one is naturally buddhist actually that's a that's a, hilarious but the, do you think that you can tell the difference between uh so, you know, one possibility is that just the people who are awesome meditators were also people who cared about others. Like, ha- have you ever known anybody who was just an absolute asshole? I don't know if this will be in the show. I'm just talking to you while Tamler, <laughs> um, d- who changed. Have you seen people's character? Uh, well, change? I haven't followed, you know, I haven't, I haven't followed people over time. I've never known anybody when they were not meditating at all. Mm-hmm. And after they became a very, very serious, committed meditator. I knew this guy who was kind of always a dick, and he did loving kindness meditation. He did, you know. I'm back. Like, you don't want to for, talk about me. For, <laughs> I was just gonna yeah. say. <laughs> no, Tamler doesn't do. Tamler is the kind that's. Now I understand. He's meditating in order to to be able to use it against me to somehow, you. So, you know, like a power, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> to molest me. Uh, no, I did know a guy who did loving kindness meditation, and, and he was he was kind of always negative. And the last time I saw him, he was amazing. It was an amazing change. Yeah, that works for some people. Loving kindness meditation has never really worked for me. That's the intentional cultivation yeah, of compassion right. and love. And I'm, I'm so re- naturally compassionate that I need to tone it down. Yeah, that's. You know? uh, I was just about to recommend that to you. That's a problem I don't <laughs> face, but I have not been able to use that tool to. Cultivate it. I, I, you know, I would just settle for becoming less of an asshole, and I think that naturally results from sustained mindfulness meditation. I, I, not, not in, inevitably, but I think it really tends to happen. Right. There is an amazing amount of 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 evidence that those techniques are. You know, I mean, there there's a reason that those techniques are used for like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Like they do work, right? And, and that has always amazed me that, that it does seem as if Buddhists stumbled upon something really powerful. Yeah, there's a there's, a there's a natural connection to cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. and the two are used together sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I've had severe, severe dental pain, like throbbing, the worst pain I've ever had. And I had like that's the time where I like I actually it's the closest to a, a true Buddhist experience I've ever had where I the only thing I could do was sit and observe the pain and it fucking worked. It was that, amazing. That's funny because I, I mean, I've never done it in a dentist chair. I did on a retreat. I, I mentioned this in the book. I had uh, what turned out to be an abscess tooth while on it happened yeah, while on retreat. Yeah, yeah. 
And so as an experiment, I like meditated for a while in my room and then just drank a lot of water that was guaranteed to cause huge pain. And it really was a different experience. It yeah. didn't, I didn't get to the point where I loved it, but it was like, it no, was like, no, no, no. it was yeah. just this awesome, what, the, what would normally be the pain was just like this kind of awe-inspiring wave of sensation. <laughs> yeah. And you, and sometimes you'd be going, oh, that's not good. But sometimes you'd be going, oh, like, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so weird. there yeah. have been uh, Buddhist monks who famously sat down and as part of some social protest immolated themselves and did yeah. not move a muscle. Okay. Did that's not insane. react to burning. So uh, it's, amazing yeah. things are, are, are possible. So there's one claim in this book that really bugged me on a philosophical level. And I wanted to read it to you and then ask you to either withdraw it or defend it. Uh, um, I would just like to preemptively withdraw it. Such is my respect for your intellectual prowess that I'm sure you found a fatal flaw. I no, I think you're committed to this one just based on the conversation. So this is towards the end of the book. You're talking about how Buddhism can lead you to reject the values of natural selection. And you say, are the value values of natural selection that are being rejected in the course of enlightenment actually false? Yes, in some sense. Consider the absurdity of the current situation. The planet is full of people operating on the premise that their interests trump the interests of pretty much everyone, everyone else on the planet. Yet it can't be the case that everybody is more important than everybody else. So a core tenet of natural selection's value system is internally contradictory. Now, I, I've seen this kind of claim before. You see it in Sidgwick, who you also quote sometimes, and you know, like the, it's, a, it's a very common kind of common utilitarian thing to say. Let's just say that you know we we can make sense of natural selection's values in the way that you say. I don't think that the value is I'm objectively more special than anyone else, right? That's not the natural selection value you're talking about. I'm objectively more special than anyone else, or I'm the most special from the point of view of the universe. The value is I have this special obligation to care for myself and my family, and I should value us more than I should value strangers. When you look at it like that, there's nothing remotely contradictory about everybody having that thought or everyone having that uh, moral conviction that they should value themselves and their family over everybody else. Everyone can have that value. And they're not saying that other people won't have it or that other people shouldn't value their own interests, right? Well, yeah, if the way you personally articulate the idea is, I think I'm special, I, I'm going to act as if I'm special, um, and I understand everyone else is going to well, do that too, and that's the game, right? I mean, if everyone has that as their explicit belief, there's in a sense not a contradiction uh, among those beliefs. But I, I'm not really talking so much about explicit belief. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I mean, sometimes I am maybe, but I'm also talking about just the values implicit in the kinds of behaviors that natural selection leads to. So... When I'm when I am holding up my arm, trying furiously to hail a cab, trying to raise my hand higher than somebody else, you know, there's a sense in which the the implicit 
value is is on my interest relative to theirs. That that my, implicitly the idea is that that it's more important that I catch the cab than that they catch it. But and, I think and, you're just saying I want to catch this cab and I don't want that guy to. There's nothing contradictory well, about well, fine, it. It's not but, a logical. But, but then, con- you make it sound like a logical into, contradiction. Okay, but then you get into all of these out and out distorting ramifications of natural selections value system. Okay, so like the person you know, raises their hand, succeeds in raising their hand higher than you, and you go, "That's unfair. They're taller." Now that's an extreme case. But what I what I mean is, if you look at the kinds of grievances uh, we we bring up, and and the way we distort our assessment of the evidence to value ourselves, that is actual misperception, right? Because because right. Uh, you know our, our application of rules we think of as universal. It's not fair that this person did that. Then when we do it, we think it's fair. That is an actual internal contradiction it, within our own belief system. And those kinds of things are ultimately a reflection of natural selection's value system, which is to get each organism to behave in all kinds of ways as if it's special. I mean, I take your point that there's a way... To, to the extent that you, you do start to imagine that there is some objective truth about fairness or something and that you were victimized you could get into a contradictory frame of mind so i agree with you on that i guess i i I sort of am a little more skeptical than you are that that people do have these kind of objectivist commitments to no but i don't think he has to say that they have objectivist commitments you could just say like in a zero-sum situation natural selection makes you uh so if every, if natural selection put everybody together in a zero sum game, um, then then the system has has to like screw people over, right? So na- natural selection did not make people very good at sharing resources. That right, like everybody's going to take us try to take a bigger piece of the pie. I don't think the claim is that they're objectivist about that. That they're it's just. But then there's no have. contradiction. There's, well, there, there's there a bad a situation, maybe. The system is contradictory, right? The system has built everybody to maximize in a way that means that somebody will get screwed over. So, so to like the extent that you can personify a system, I think that's the point, right? Am I right? Yeah, I think I'd be more uh, attracted to Tamler's argument if it weren't the case that we do naturally tend to convert our pursuit of interest into actual moral ideas that uh, that don't make sense, that that lead to actual distortion. So, but okay, so so we could, let's on the same theme. It is a surprising claim for somebody who wrote the book Non-Zero, which I love, <laughs> which very much argues that those the tender emotions uh, or the the good part of humanity comes from selective pressures to cooperate. Um, and that it, it seems as if you've gone back to a red in tooth and claw view of natural selection. Uh, no, I mean, I've always felt, and in non-zero, I mean, that was take, the book was taken as more optimistic than it was. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> argument was that 
given the direction of technological evolution, which has its own kind of inexorable impetus, and given human nature, I think it was inevitable that we would get to the brink of having a cohesive global community. This has been driven by what you could call a kind of expanding web of non-zero-sumness or something, although also driven by a lot of competitiveness in zero-sum context between societies, between people, and so on. But still, yeah, there's this expanding web. That's the good news, but I've always felt that there was this... uh, that there was the real threat, especially as social organization approaches the global level, that the system unwinds and that, that you know, kind of tribal psychology gets the better of us. Uh, and you can imagine a kind of a, a positive feedback system in a negative sense. In other words, bad things feeding on themselves. Like, you know, say terrorism happens, you do a stupid thing in response to it, the terrorism gets worse, you do more stupid things. <laughs> Not that that could ever happen on this planet. <laughs> But, um, and that that could, you know, that the whole project could kind of dissolve in chaos. And I feel that one reason I wrote this book is I feel like we are, we're kind of there now. Politically, that's where we are. We're at this crossroads where there's explicit opposition to global community almost that has become a potent political force. But I don't think the blame, what I call the blame, lies on that side alone. I think in general... Uh, tribal psychology afflicts all parties, and I think some sort of greater awareness. And I think if the if people in the world don't become more aware of them, bad things could happen. I know you didn't ask for that particular non-zero related sermon, but that's is <laughs> yeah. related to this. But I I did want to say though that that I mean the part of the story really is that non-zero some forces shaped sort of natural natural selection shaped human psychology to sure. care about other human beings deeply and fundamentally sure. um, because it benefited us um, individually and those parts aren't the parts that you want to get rid of through meditation right right but, right I, I mean but, it's a real blessing and you wouldn't have necessarily predicted that a process like natural selection would give us things like love and a sense of gratitude and obligation toward friends and all that, uh, I'm just saying that it's not enough. They, they don't, their natural operation seems not enough to, to save the moment here. Right at the end of the book, you say that it's kind of amazing that the same thing, meditation leads to lessening of suffering and it also leads to seeing the metaphysical truth and acting on attendant moral truth. Because um, the world didn't have to be that way. It could be that meditating on something that was false, metaphysically false, would make you happier or something like that. You seem, although you don't explicitly say, you seem to think that that's, there are some implications of that. The fact well, that all these things are kind of coinciding. And I was wondering what, what you think those are. Well, first of all, I mean, that is kind of the Buddhist claim, at least traditional Buddhist philosophy, is that there is this alignment of metaphysics and personal well-being and morality. And it's, a, it's, it's an amazing claim, the idea that the world is structured such that if you see the world more clearly, you'll become happier and you'll become a better person. That's like a nice three-for-one deal. Uh, and you can, I guess, imagine a universe in which it's not the case. And so all I say in the book is, I feel kind of grateful for that. I mean, if you're asking, are you asking me to oh, okay. speculate uh, about higher purpose or something or? 
Well, I don't know. Like, it, just the way it was phrased, maybe I just misread it or misinterpreted uh, it. It seemed like that there was some significance to the fact that all three of these things were aligning uh, well, in some way. Not just that it was really cool and that's great, you know, like... Well, there could be because we, I mean, we don't know what constructed reality. I, I do uh, say that this this fact seems to lie at a level in some sense deeper than natural selection. And I was kind of asking myself, like, what did I mean? That's one of those things that you kind of feel is true, but it's hard to clearly defend. And, and I think what I mean is you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine a universe with different metaphysical principles. I mean, suppose there were no subjective awareness, just to take a crude example. Suppose that... Uh, physical, it was not like anything to be a physical organism. That's an intelligible universe to me. Well, then this whole thing would be very different. We wouldn't be talking about this at all. Um, so I'm just saying you can imagine, presumably you can imagine universes in which these things didn't align. I think they largely do. Uh, although again, uh, you know, meditative attainment is not guaranteed to make you a better person. I think it tends to. Um, I just think it's amazing what we don't know is if it comes with any serious side effects. Like if erectile dysfunction turns out to be one of the, you know, then it's just like throw it out. <laughs> if, if, uh, like you get moral progress, you get happiness, uh, but and you, by the way. <laughs> and you get erectile dysfunction as well? Is that your yeah. fear? And then it wouldn't seem so coincidental. You just be like, oh, it's just one of those things. So, so these all... three things lined up. Yeah. But this fourth one. You know, I, hadn't, I, I knew that I would come away from this podcast thinking about something that I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> but I thought it would happen in a good way. Well, I, here's what what one thing that I I want to get to before we end. I know we should probably wrap this up soon. Um, so natural selection gave us brains that allow us to do this, and I don't think that we can easily just dismiss this as as you know what cool paradox. Um, there is something interesting in what what is it that allow what is it that unlocked those powers, the ability to transcend. Right. Much of what you're saying is that we're trans we, we can transcend through meditation and through reflection on these these principles, um, transcend the, the baggage of natural selection to see the truth. Um, but we're doing it with equipment that natural selection gave us. Um, what aspect of our mind is it was what it must have not been selected for. Right. I mean, well, I mean, if you took that question too far you would be saying how could we ever do anything that doesn't further the proliferation of our genes right but we all know you can and and it, yeah, ha it has to do with the fact that, right. that uh, through evolution we become more and more behaviorally flexible more and more capable of reflection i mean all that said i do think <clears throat> it takes real real work it's it's not like you can snap your fingers i mean and if you look at the the most fundamental problem, this idea that, you know, we're always, we're always seeking the next bit of gratification. And it's not just that it will eventually dissipate. It's designed to dissipate. It isn't just that natural selection doesn't yeah. care whether we're enduringly happy. Natural selection does not want us to be enduringly happy. And, it, and, and when you confront something like that, this thirst for things to always be better, for all the bad feelings to go away, uh, and 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 to always go go hang on to those good feelings. When you when you look at something that fundamental, you know, if you look at the people who seem to have made really dramatic progress in that realm, so that they're just not going around clinging to things and and feelings and and pleasures, and yet 
ironically perhaps, report being happier than they ever were before, um, you see people who've invested a huge amount of effort and energy and discipline. So I guess I'm just saying you would expect it to be very hard to very fundamentally defy natural selection's value system, and it is. I like how you talk about uh, the... I don't remember if it was somebody at the Meditation Institute telling you that writing this book is probably a bad idea. <laughs> it'd be better. It'd be better to channel your energy into yeah, this, actually becoming a meditation t-shirt retreat. Said, you know, I think you may have to decide between writing this book and liberation. <laughs> and I thought, first of all, I don't think liber- true liberation is in the cards for me. But uh, but she was right that I mean, let me just say, I'm eager to go back and do like a two week retreat without this book on my mind, without always right. thinking, oh, here's a meditative experience I can describe, right. you know? I think maybe right. I'll get further. So maybe next time you see me, I actually will be enlightened. <laughs> well, what a sacrifice then. I mean, if you, if you just for us to be able to get That's to right. read this book, you gave up Nirvana. Yeah. That's about as, I don't know, like, what other reader listeners want in terms of a motivation to buy the book. Uh, I, you know, I so agree. It's like uh, Jesus level sacrifice. <laughs> well, there's actually a concept in Mahayana Buddhism, one of the two kinds of the Bodhisattva, who does exactly this. The Bodhisattva is somebody who comes up to the brink of nirvana and they can just, like, chill and bliss out. But no, they want to help people and they continue going around and. In, Enduring the grimness of, you know, daily uh, work and, and help it's people. It's like Plato's cave. Yeah. Yeah. It's like coming back into the cave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. That would be me. Yes. <laughs> I, th- I, too, thank you for this sacrifice. On behalf uh, of humankind, we should emphasize. It isn't just David we're talking about here. Raw <laughs> yeah. so, Wright may be reincarnated as a cockroach simply because he wrote this book for us. <laughs> That's not the way it works, actually. The more virtuous you are. <laughs> Better. I, I have hope of a thing uh, better than cockroach. <laughs> so let's let's end on that. What do you want to come back as? I would settle for LeBron James. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was going to say a Jew. <laughs> I, I, that's what I would or, want. Or a Jewish LeBron James. <laughs> Jewish LeBron James. Yeah, that seems like an internal contradiction. But. <laughs> There have been, you know, Frank, <laughs> Frank Four wrote a great whole book about Jewish athletes. Didn't he? Have you read this book? <laughs> the, the shortest book ever, <laughs> isn't that the joke? Like, <laughs> it's a pamphlet. It's a pamphlet. <laughs> no, there's been more of it than you might imagine. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Bob. Well, thank you. This was, this was great. I really appreciate the seriousness of the cross-examination. <laughs> That's right. And August 8 or so, but we'll put a link to Why Buddhism is True. For Never too reasons. soon to pre-order, you might add. Never too soon. That's right. Um, great book. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank pre-ordering you. is big, right? The more pre-orders you get, the more... If The more you pre-order, the more likely that you will have a favorable rebirth. <laughs> yes it does help in exactly that way that's good otherwise it, you could either cockroach be Jewish City. LeBron James or yeah or you could be a cockroach the choice is yours the cockroaches are doing very well in my house right now so I wouldn't you know I wouldn't but, but are they turn happy? your nose down at them are, are they, they happy, happy? alright thank you thank you